The Screen Directors Guild of Ireland presents the third and final episode of Wash Your Eyes, held on Wednesday, July the 1st. The Creative Mind, How I Tell Stories, with John Banville, Brendan and Niall Heary, Lisa McInerney, Terry McMahon, Paul Murray, Christian O'Reilly and Jim Sheridan, facilitated by Stephen Benedict. Just before that, I just want to introduce Stephen Benedict, who's going to be the ringmaster this evening and make sure that everybody gets a chance to kind of have their, their, their words in. Uh, Stephen Benedict, he's a contributor on, to several shows on News Talk 106. He lectures in the University College Dublin and the National College of Art and Design and the National Film School. He's author of the novel Passchendaele, a romantic epic set in World War I. Uh, he's the co-director of Poison Pen, a London-based romantic comedy written by best-selling author Owen Colfer. So I'll hand over to uh, Stephen, and I hope you really have a, a really great evening. Thank you. Okay, so in keeping with the, the heat of the evening, I, I'm looking forward to some heated debate and some uh, heated exchanges. Keep it nice and lively. We'll, we'll begin with John. Um, John, as an author, um, you've written under two names. Yes. And you've also, you've also adapted The Last September. And now you're collaborating with a director who began his career as a writer, Neil Jordan. You're doing Riviera, I understand. So maybe you uh, enlighten us as to the different techniques that you deploy when you are writing a screenplay, which you did for Albert Knobs, or when you're writing a book on your own name, or whether it's... Um, whether it's for the quirk series, what are your different approaches? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be as brief as I can, but I'm very old. I'm probably the oldest person in the room. A proud boast. Um, I started writing for the screen in about 1982 or 83, when, before Channel 4 had started. And Channel 4 was going about the world looking for scripts. And uh, Neil Jordan's friend, Walter Donahue, said to me, got, got, got something you can write? And I had a little novella that looked as if it wasn't going to be published called uh, The Newton Letter. And I said, well, I could turn this into a script. And uh, he said, yeah, go ahead. Was in those, I mean, these are the buccaneering days of uh, Channel 4. And uh, I turned it into a script. It, it took me two years to write the book. It took me three days to write the script. We all know this awful secret, <laughs> right? It won't go beyond this room. <laughs> Scripts are written very quickly. You put them in the drawer and pretend you've been working on them for six months. Actually, you've done them in, you know, six weeks, six days. Um, and that was a great experience. It was fun. Uh, I had a wonderful cast. Gabriel Byrne, before he was Gabriel Byrne. Um, I had Harriet Walter, I had uh, Donald McCann. It was directed by Kevin Dennington, and it was a flop, um, an honourable flop, but it was a flop. And I've been flopping ever since. Uh, it's very, very hard to make a movie, as we all know. I mean, it is. Is it William Goldman who said, Nobody knows, nobody knows anything? And it's absolutely true. Nobody knows what makes a good movie. You know, you can have a wonderful script, a wonderful cast, you know, it can be vast amounts of money. I remember when we were doing the last September, we would moan about having only nine million pounds. And every now and then we'd say, Jesus Christ, nine million pounds. To make a little movie that people will go 
I look out on a wet Saturday afternoon and say, I didn't think much of that, did you? Uh, you know, it's, in a way, it's a dreadful waste of money. Because before that, I had I only published books. And you know, when you publish, you, you, you write a book, you send it to a publisher, they say, well, we don't like the title, and you say, well, I don't like you, and then they, <laughs> and they publish the book, and people sneer at it, or say it's nice, and that's the end of it. In the movies, as we know, everybody knows how to write a script, except the scriptwriter. The key grip, the best boy, the caterer, they all know how the script should have been written, except us. Everybody knows how to do it. So, in a way, it's, it's a, as we all know, it's a sort of a torment, and it takes so long. It took Glenn Close 20 years to make Alma McNobbs, and when she made it, it wasn't worth making. You know, by the time she got to it, it was dead. It had gone completely dead. And she had lost interest. Um, I still love writing for the screen. I think it's an absolute delight. I think it's astonishing to see human beings, <laughs> if you think actors are human beings, actually speaking your lines uh, and literally fleshing out the words that, that you've written. So it's an extraordinary, it's a magical experience. And also the last thing I'll say is that we mustn't forget that getting, I mean in my day in the, in the old Savoy it would be a sort of a thousand people in a dark space watching this extraordinary dream, you know, washing across the screen. A dream that somebody had written, somebody had directed, somebody had acted in, a, a total fantasy that yet they were completely mesmerized by. And in those days we used to have to queue for the movies and you would always watch the people coming out. And they would, it was the invasion of the zombies. And you'd say, what was it like? Well, they didn't know because they were still caught in the dream, that extraordinary dream that we do. And I never tire of it. Someday I will make a movie that I like, and that I think this is a success and this is something I can be proud of. But as I say, I'm the oldest person in the room, so the chances are not very strong, but you never know. Yeah. I might do it next year or the year after. Yeah. So. And John mentioned... Oh, I, I've spoken for too long, I'm sorry. No, we're not finished with the ask. <laughs> <laughs> and John mentioned uh, collaborating with Neil Jordan there, and I'd like to bring in Niall and Brendan Heary, because we're talking about brothers and collaborating with each other, and how difficult is that, sibling rivalry, or is it just creative differences that you have? It's terribly uninteresting. There's uh, no real, no real drama. It's all very peaceful, personable. We tend to agree on 99% of our ideas and stuff. I mean, why it's, I suppose where it really benefits or really seems is just in, in your speed. You tend to not waste months and months going down these like dark avenues and then realizing after a month or two that you've made a terrible mistake. You, you tend to kind of figure out a lot quicker where you're going, what works, what doesn't work. And like, it's also really useful that I suppose with all the best will in the world, your partner and your wife or husband or whoever, they don't, they don't necessarily really want to hear exactly what a guy is wearing on any specific scene. He, they don't necessarily want to engage on that level mm -hmm. all the time. So it's great having someone who's kind of like a, a second half to you that you can just bounce absolutely anything off and get the kind of feedback back to you. So who does the typing and who does the dictation? I think we pretty much um, we don't, we very rarely work in the same space. In oh, fact, right. we never work in the same space. You know, we'll um, usually sit around and 
discuss an idea or discuss a project or you know and we, we kind of take scenes upon ourselves you know so um, I'll write a scene and do have a bash it and send it to Brendan or vice versa mm -hmm. but for me um, I mean I really like having uh, I like having a, a co-writer or a, a you know co-collaborator co, um, because um, writing and writing and directing in some respects are very similar you know you ask yourself kind of many of the same questions when you're kind of get, getting to the bottom of something but the the process is very different you know kind of directing directing is very kind of collaborative you know and you don't actually have to do that much yourself you know there's kind of you know what you really need to be able to is kind of kind of um, communicate to to someone else who'll then go and do it uh, writing's quite different it's for, you know it's, it's, it's for me anyway it's far more uh, it's a far more lonesome process and I think you'll find a lot of a lot of people who make films quite like collaborating because it's kind of you're doing it in on, in every element of it. You know, you're you're, you're collaborating with someone, but um, what except 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 for the um, the writing process, which is the which is the most difficult because it's the you know it's the only part of the process where you're where you where you have nothing to draw from. Yeah. You know, you get apart from your, your your imagination. So um, so for me, yeah, I mean, I think having a having a a, a co-writer makes the process far less painful. And um, yeah, but and as I said, I mean, you know, it, it's 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 not a complicated relationship, you know. It kind of what it does is speed things up, and you know, it's if you have a bad idea, there's someone there to tell you immediately. Well, that doesn't really work, as opposed to kind of you know taking two or three weeks to come to that conclusion. Right, but, but taking up what you said, I mean, I was amazed to discover you don't occupy the same physical space when you're writing. I mean, I don't know whether anyone's ever seen it, but there's a great documentary on Billy Wilder and his great collaboration with IAL Diamond. And Diamond would just simply write, and Billy Wilder would walk back and forth with, with his cane. Now, he wasn't dictated <coughs> to I.L. Diamond, because I.L. Diamond was editing as he went, but you would you send scenes back and forth to each other. Or yeah, yeah. Definitely. Actually, I mean, you're making me feel bad for not working that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, initially, when we started working together, it was we had to be in the same space for, right. for the first few years. And then, I, I suppose we just grew so used to each other's kind of responses that it became okay to just go and do a scene, send it back and forth, and we'll both take scenes, send it back several times, and then eventually have something that we're both happy with. We only tend to meet up when something is going wrong. Hmm. So that's sort of, when we have, we have to have an emergency, we need to knuckle down and solve a big problem. Right. But in terms of the actual process, it's... Yeah, but, and as not as you said, the most difficult thing in making a movie is the first thought. Because yeah. you know, it, um, production designer, costume designer, they're reacting to what's been given to them. So, Lisa, can I bring you in and ask you? I mean, you know, what's your discipline for writing? You began, you began writing the blog, and you're recently published with the Glorious Harrison. Yeah, um, I started writing a blog basically because I was I was at home with a small kid and needed something to keep me sane. So, I started writing a very insane blog, um, which was great because because of the fact that you know. Blogging had really just started taking off, and this is the R side of Ireland. The R side yeah. of Ireland, yes, which is where I'm from, not here. <laughs> <laughs> Where's um, that? Huh? Where's that? Gol. Gol is the R side. Anyway, so. Um, but I mean, like, so you have a computer in your house, and then all of a sudden you have platforms, mm. and you have readers, which is is not necessarily something you have when you start out writing fiction. You you press your stuff on people to read, and they go leave me alone you know so um yeah so in terms of the process what i used to do there i had to be very very disciplined because it took off very very fast and people were reading it and people liked it and people were kind of giving out when there wasn't something new to read so i kind of dropped the kid off to school and then i would go home and write and essentially i've kept that now for writing um 
from my novel, which has just been published. I, I've kept that kind of process. I've kept that discipline. So I guess uh, I guess the blogging was a good kind of a run up to it, really, in terms of the practicalities of it. Right. Being at the desk and sitting there, which is great because you can play solitaire. It's fantastic. Computers <laughs> are brilliant. Um. So yeah. Yeah, that's the. So, but the the discipline of it. You know, now that you've got your you're, you're published with your novel, mm. um, are you working the second one? What's your procedure for your your daily routine of writing? I'm, I am I'm actually editing the second one at the moment, which is it was actually due in the deadline was yesterday. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think it'll be fine. Um, in terms of the it, it's it's the same thing. It's, it, I try try to treat it like it's an office job. Mm. I try to go up there. I get my I go up and do whatever I need to do in the morning, and then I bring my coffee and I sit up there and I have a situation, I won't leave the room until I've done a thousand words. Now there could be a thousand words of absolute shite but at least if I pass the thousand words mark I feel like I can go downstairs and have a second coffee or you know whatever. So um, actually after I finish the thousand words I feel like I'm done for the day so I <laughs> go off and uh, play some video games. So you, you, you type, you work in your own home? Yeah, right. gotcha. Um, I, 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 I got this question recently, it was asked for I think it was, it was Cara magazine, which is the influx magazine for um, Aer Lingus. And they had, because they have a travel slant on things, it's like, where's the most exciting place you've ever written? I don't write anywhere exciting. How could you write somewhere exciting? It's just, it would be very distracting. You need to write somewhere very, very boring. That's, that's what I think. I mean, I just stare at a wall, essentially. Occasionally, I'll walk up to the window and stare at it, but again, it's in Galway. It's not very exciting out there. So. Paul, where do you write? Uh, I was recently asked by. Um, the New York Times has this feature called Writer's Rooms, and I asked uh, what I think of contributing, uh, you know, some, some pictures and like maybe a few words about the place where I write to see if, if, if you know, it, would, it would merit inclusion in Writer's Rooms. And they had uh, the Writer's Rooms of, uh, of some very famous, glamorous writers, and they had these beautiful sort of, you know, oak-panelled rooms, you know, or Tom McCarthy's in this sort of, you know, virtual room, sort of part in reality and part in the future. Um, and I, I would sort of be, at least I think that um, really you want it to be as, it's like, because writing is such a, is such a, a sort of, like not to, not to sort of, well I will not, but it, it's like, it's a, it's a fairly sort of lonely, kind of painful uh, process. And I think like any distraction, whatever, uh, you will, you will, you will avail of it. You know, so if there was, if there's a fire in my room. I would probably go and walk into the fire, you know, just to avoid writing. You know, it's like it's so. so I think that I think that um, what I so where I work now. I used to work at home, uh, and then I had a small child as well. And working with a small child in the house is is impossible. So um, so I've got uh, I've got an office on Lippy Street. It's like a like a kind of a cave at the top of a building beside a kebab shop, um, and a recently. A mysteriously closed uh, Thai noodle place, which I'm, I'm sorry, I, never, I never, I never ate in. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's great. Like it's just like it's just it's just just a wall, you know. And and it's it's uh, it's it's very very dull. And I go in like I'm pretty. Again, like I think discipline is probably the key thing for for. I mean, it's it's I I would I, I would agree with, with John. Like I think that um, having sort of recently kind of tried my hand at screenwriting a little bit, I think kind of the strange thing about screenwriting. If you're coming from writing novels, it's just how uh, quickly it goes, you know. Because like uh, writing writing a piece of prose, you spend a long time on just on obviously on just descriptions and just sentences and just the sound of the sentences, um, and dialogue is sort of like a break in in the prose. And I quite like writing dialogues a break in prose. 
So if you're presented with the opportunity to just write dialogue, um, I find myself just like writing, you know, I've, I've finished my script, you know, I write it in a couple of days. And then you go back into it, and it's just, it's just people yammering back and forth, you know, to no, mm -hmm. to no purpose. So, so it's an entirely different skill set to find out, like, for the dialogue to actually have a purpose is, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, quite a, it's quite a difficult, um, it's just a new skill to learn, I think. Um, but yeah, but with regard to the novel, um, I think that, like Woody Allen said, 80% of success is showing up, and I think that uh, certainly for novels, I don't know about screen type, but for novels, just showing up day after day. Do you clock in at nine o'clock or at specific well, not time? Nine o'clock. No, but at a specific time. I'm you honest. make sure you're there at a certain time. Yeah, I clock in around sort of about half ten or so, and it stays about six. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, usually the first draft for me is is um, is fun and goes pretty quickly because it's just you know when all the ideas are, are coming and it all sort of, all the ideas are sparking off each other and and taking new directions and so on and so on. Um, that's all great. Uh, it's it's the, the longer part of the process and the more painful part of the process is is the is the revision. The so there's usually sort of three or four pretty serious redrafts when you go back to this this kind of chaos that you've created um, and try and give it some sort of form um, and work out like because usually I mean hopefully there is some sort of a a, a structure hidden within this um, morass. Uh, but it takes it takes a long time to work out like why each element is there mm -hmm. and, and what the relationships are. Um, Amos Martin Amos had some line about um, you know the only way you find out what a novel is about is by is by writing it. So it's, it's quite late in the day, startlingly late in the day, uh, frighteningly late in the day. If, if you know the editor is saying where is your novel, and that you actually discover it, you kind of go oh wow well that's why that's there and that's there, uh, and you can start to actually kind of. It can actually start to, to kind of cohere and become logical, um, and the only way to get to that point, I think, is uh, after the honeymoon period is over, uh, is just to kind of keep showing up every yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what Paul is saying there intrigued me because uh, Terry, he was saying about the discipline uh, of writing, but also the discipline of writing a script, which is a completely different discipline. And Paul's novel Skippy Dies opens with this incredible image. I don't know, I'm sure you've all read Skippy Dies. Incredible image of the school teacher looking at the window and dreaming that the field outside the school is burning. And it's such a cinematic image. Terry, when you're writing your screenplays, you're not only thinking about the characters, you're thinking about how it's going to look and how you're going to edit it. I think anyone who's watched your films, editing is a very, very strong point in the way you construct the story. Can you tell us about the, dis the difference between writing your script and then editing it? I'm not being facetious, but I'm just thinking about the fucking check. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, what I have to deliver on and the reality of being impoverished, and the reality of multiple young children. But also, J John Bandle, without embarrassing you here, to be in the same room as you, much less the same panel, is fucking an honor. So we'll leave that there. But to write something at all, to look at a blank page, is the greatest act of optimism imaginable, and the dumbest fucking thing you'll ever do. <laughs> and yet we keep on returning to it. And you never learn, it never gets easier. No matter how well you've done the previous time, you forget fucking everything again. That amnesia taunts you. And you try to find multiple ways to try and get back into some kind of cohesion that you were servicing. So I record on phone, I walk down the street like a madman. I sit with my family and they're looking at me having a conversation. And instead these characters are talking on my head and they see that blank look in my eyes and they go, that cunt is writing again. <laughs> so I have no idea how people sit down at 9 o'clock in the morning or any time and come up with 3,000 words. If I sit down and write two sentences, I think it's an achievement. If you get the script finished, and delivered because someone paid for it. I think it's a staggering act of torture, and yet I return to it again tomorrow morning. 
So you write when it comes to you, or do you sit down, as, as Paul was saying, at a specific time? It comes to you constantly. It's there all the time. Right. I think, it, it, again, I'm sure it's different for everybody in the room, but you get, that, you get to that point, hopefully, where the characters start telling you who they are, where they start telling you to shut the fuck up and they're going to tell you how it's going to be. And that humbling silence is the best place where writing comes from for me. But for others, maybe it's about orchestration, maybe it's about the puppet master, maybe it's different. But for me, the most exciting time is when you suddenly realize this is now bigger than you. Sounds very painful. It's way fucking horrible. <laughs> it's disgusting. Christian, would you agree with that? That it's painful. Yeah, you can describe that. It, it sort of it, it it kind of depends and it varies. Um, uh, some some th some projects, some scripts I've written um, have come fairly fairly quickly. I guess I'm thinking of stage plays, um, and then others. Um, I might agonise over for like uh, there's my, my first my first play. Um, the Good Father. Yeah, The Good Father. Yeah. I, I, I had a kind of a. It, w it initially consisted of two scenes, um, uh, a kind of uh, Act One and Act Two, and what and the first scene was a big long monologue, um, and the second scene was a mess, um, and the form didn't work. I remember and I remember reading play after play after play, trying to get some kind of inspiration because I didn't start off as a playwright. Uh, I started off trying to, well, it, it, that's a long story, but certainly I, 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 I went to, to try and be a screenwriter before a playwright, so I didn't feel that I had roots in the theatre and um, I wasn't sure of the form. Um, and then I read Willie Russell's Ed Educating Rita, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is a two-hander uh, of, I think, about 16 scenes and 16 snapshots, and I, and I, I suddenly saw the form for my play, which was a, a, an equivalent form um, because it was also a two-hander, um, about a, 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 a man and a woman who meet at a New Year's Eve party. Uh, he's, paint, he paint, he's there because he painted the kitchen and she's there because um, she's best friends with the, the girl that's throwing the party. They, sh they, they, have sh they have sex that night, she gets pregnant and uh, they try and begin a relationship. Um, and so I saw the form that that, that sort of ten, 10 scenes over the course of a year. And when I, when I found the form, the thing begin to, began to sort of come together um, and then it, it, it was painless enough until we got to rehearsal. Um, and I remember we did a reading of the play about six weeks before rehearsal and Gary Hines was directing it. And uh, she says, I think it needs a bit of work, but I'm not quite sure, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. And then on um, day one of rehearsal, uh, the play is read before the company of actors and uh, the, company, the whole theatre company and everyone collapsed, collapsed politely. And I was thinking, my job is done. I'm off to the pub, like, this is it, you know. And then she says, come in tomorrow. So I came in tomorrow and there was like the two actors, the stage manager. Gary Hines and me, and she picks up her pen, and uh, probably shouldn't be saying this, but anyway, I've told this story a few times. She goes like, gets up and she, she throws it. She's, I don't know what the fuck this play is about. What's this play about? And then the actors go, Yeah, I was. <laughs> even even the stage manager going, going, Yeah, yeah. And I'm, thinking, and I'm thinking this is all a big piss take, right? And then it's like, No. And they proceeded to dis dismantle or interrogate the play, and. Um, and, and I realised that she only came alive to the play when she absolutely had to, in rehearsal, when it was on its feet. Um, and um, the, the interrogation was necessary and unbelievably painful. Um, and I realised I didn't know the play as well as I thought I did. Um, and particularly the second half of it was problematic. And I did about 17 revisions of the play in the next five weeks. I would attend every day of rehearsal. I'd go home at night. I'd rewrite till the early hours. I'd bring it in. The actors would read it cold, like at 10 o'clock, 
and it'd be like, no, this isn't, this isn't working. This is like, and I'd go home again, and it's like, oh my god. And I felt like, I felt like a, an amateur footballer who was suddenly in the, in, in the Champions League arena, right. and I've been found out. And meanwhile, what production was 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 uh, <laughs> the opening night was looming, and it was a real, it was a real crucible. Um, and uh, I remember she said, she just, she she said to me. Um, she said, just stay in charge of it. Just stay in charge of it. And that, this is the thing about theatre that I love. Even when your play is in the toilet, they don't kind of say, we're going to sack you. We're going to get somebody else, which is what happens in film and, and television, in my experience. Um, and she said, stay in charge of it. And so I, I, I took on that. I said, this is my play. I've got to try and make that work. So I, I persevered with the thing. And um, I remember we got to the first preview and... Uh, Hundred people packed into Druid, and we got a standing ovation, and it was just such a great feeling. And then we sat in the pub afterwards, um, um, and uh, I was sitting beside her, and then the two actors were sitting where you guys are, are over there, and they were getting hammered, and they were celebrating. And she turned to me and she said, um, "What do you think?" And I said, I, "I well, we got a standing ovation. What do you think?" And she says, "Yeah, but like the, the, it doesn't. We got the standing ovation because of fireworks acting." She said, "The play is wobbly." And, and I kind of said, I said, I said, the ending still doesn't work, does it? And, and she said, no. But I, but, I, but I could see, having seen the preview, I said, I think I know what the hell is wrong with it, finally. And I told her what I proposed to do. She said, go home, write it up, bring it in tomorrow morning, to me alone at 9 a.m. We'll read it. I'll read it. If it's good, we'll, we'll pitch it to the actors at 11 o'clock. And if it's rubbish, we shall never speak of it again. <laughs> and the poor actress had been trying to memorise a script that had kept changing constantly. So they were, whatever got the pain for me, for them it was agonising. Aidan Kelly and Derville Crotty, they're an extraordinary actress um, and fearless as well. Um, and I was so struck by their, the, the convicting need of having a play that they, to, to memorise versus having a good play. And they, they always put the desire for a good play first. They always, they kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to make it as good as, and as emotionally truthful as it could be. And I remember she read the, the lines and she said, I think that works. We pitched it to the actors, we read it to them, and they said, yeah, and they performed it that night, and, and on it went. And that, you know, that was, um, yeah, that was painful. But it was worth it. That, in that case, yeah. it was, I've had painful experiences in TV shows that arguably, um, well, whether they're worth it, I, I don't know. But, but um, it seemed, it definitely, for The Good Father, it definitely sounds like it really, really works. Because, John, I'd like to bring you back here, because what Christian was saying to me, I can understand what I was hearing him say was honesty you know Gary was incredibly honest yeah. with you the actors were incredibly honest with you yeah. and as an author how difficult is it to be honest with yourself is that a good sentence is that a good is that a good idea is this the right direction for the story to go in well it depends what medium you're talking about I mean you know I'm a novelist and I, I only have to deal with myself I'm my own worst critic I hate all my work and I you know failed um, necessarily because I was aiming for perfection but you know I thought we were talking about movies here <laughs> movies are an entirely different <coughs> medium um, when you adapt a novel to uh, it's great getting applause already <laughs> when you adapt a novel you, it's a fascinating process because in a novel dialogue is just a part of the page, but in a script, the dialogue has to carry all the weight, and yet it has to be flat. You have to write flat, because the actors will 
literally, again, I say flesh it out, they will give the weight to it. The, the, when you write a sentence, as a novelist, when you write a sentence, it's like, you know, it's like poetry. You, there's, there's a certain rhythm, there are certain emphases here and there. An actor will give entirely different emphases to it, it's usually wrong, mm. but it's their version of it. And you have to be humble, you have to be accommodating, you have to say, this is a collegiate effort. You know, this is, this is a little, I remember asking Neil Jordan about making Angel, his first movie, and he said, well, it was like setting down a small factory in the middle of County Kildare for six weeks. And that's true, you know, it is, you're not alone, you're not, <laughs> I remember him saying on Monday morning when it started up, he felt that he was running after the machine, the machine was going, and it is a machine. That's why it's so hard to make a good movie. Uh, what? No. That's not the right thing to say. It, that's why it's so hard to, to make sure that a movie will be good. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are involved in it, so many bits of machinery are involved in it. Um, but I do find the process of, of changing from fiction into scripts absolutely fascinating. Because as I say, you have to write flat. Um, to go back to your earlier conversation, I love collaborating because writing fiction is, as we <laughs> say, it's a solitary business, uh, and I love collaborating. I remember when I was doing the last September with Deborah Warner, and Deborah and I sort of fell in love, which was wonderful because Deborah is gay, <laughs> and we would stand holding hands, and it was wonderful to work with a woman with no sexual charge at all, and we were collaborators. Um, again, it didn't quite work, but then the movies never quite worked. And you know, I always cheer myself up when I'm doing a script and I think, oh, it's really dull. I cheer myself up by thinking that and Billy Wilder, when they were looking for a last line for something like it hot, mm -hmm. they wrote, you know, nobody's perfect, and they thought, oh God, this is a bad line. <laughs> it turns out to be the best last line in any movie ever made. We know nothing. I go back to what William Gunn says. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how it works. That's the strange magic of it. It's the pain of it. It's the horror of it. Nobody knows. Sometimes it, sometimes it works. Sometimes, mostly, it doesn't. Um, uh, Roman Polanski did uh, Chinatown, and I think it was William Goldman did the script for that. Robert Town. Robert Town. Yeah, yeah, Robert Town. Sorry, gone ignorant as usual. Um, he wanted a happy ending to it. Mm. And Roman said, ah, I don't think that would be the good thing to do. And he changed it. And so the director there knew what should be done. I tend to trust the technicians. Right. You know, if I, my ideal would have, would have been to be one of those hack writers in a, a bungalow, um, you know, uncentrally heated, uh, unair-conditioned bungalow on the side of a Hollywood hill in the 1940s, churning out stuff for Barbara Stanwyck and people like that. And I, you know, producer comes in, middle of the afternoon, cigar and says, we want two scenes by six o'clock, they better be good, kid, or you're out of the picture. <laughs> I, would love to, I would love to have worked on that, because look at what they produced. A lot of it is dross, but they made some supreme, superlative works of art in that, you know, they'd shoot them in six weeks, they'd throw them together, they cost a 
few tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, the actors were just speaking these lines. It didn't have to be naturalistic. Nobody spoke real dialogue in those days. But yet they made beautiful, beautiful things. I would love to get back to that. Uh, we won't, of course. But it would be nice to get back to it. Sorry, that's no answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terry, um, John mentioned Roman Polanski, who has written or co-written a lot of his scripts. And he also mentioned Billy Wilder. Um, when you're writing, you're writing to direct, surely. Initially, so, so you're editing yourself all the way as the, the end product. Well, yeah, I'd really like to know about that. I'd like to know about how writers who are directors write. Well, it's great that you mentioned Billy Wilder, because one of the great writers if you never became a director. But Wilder came from a deeply dark place. His family was wiped out in the camps, and he came from a place where he believed that alchemy or the notion, the notion of bringing some kind of humanity into darkness and some profound darkness into humanity was imperative to qualify making those kind of films. Without self-aggrandizing, I feel that, that it's imperative that you make something that has significance beyond your ego, beyond your writer's ego, beyond your filmmaker's ego, beyond whatever. And that you hope, again at the risk of sounding ridiculous, but that you hope that you reach one person in a dark room, whether that's a single person in a bedsit watching your movie or a single person sitting alone in a crowded cinema that you hope you address something in them that they felt they were alone in perceiving. Mm. A secret, a terror, a fear, whatever it might be. And that to me is the only seed that you need to plant from the outset, that you need to protect. The rest you can fuck out at any time. The rest you can replace, the rest you can fight for or fight against. But the only thing that you need to protect is that original seed. And the idea of when you're writing something that you may or may not direct, because I originally was writing as a, a hack whore unashamedly and writing shit soap opera and all kinds of stuff. But when it came to writing something that you hoped would either be made by you or could get made, the only thing that every time you sat down in front of a blank page was, what is the idea, what is the theme, what is that unifying notion that you need to protect? Because there are millions of ideas you're going to have that you're going to love. Mm -hmm. There are millions of ideas you're going to have that you're going to despise, and you can't tell which is right or which is wrong. But the only thing you can do is measure them against that seed. And that fundamental seed needs to progress past script stage into pre-production, into production, into post-production, into editing, into everything. So that your only job, I, again, at the risk of sounding naive, but your only job is to empower other people to somehow take that seed and to take it to a place that you yourself had not conceived of. Because mm -hmm. I can never understand this notion of a director who has this film mapped out in their head. And they, they are celebrated for reproducing that mapped out scene. I can't think of anything more masturbatory or more pointless. Whereas the idea of having an idea in your head that you are thematically pursuing with everything you have and that you were hoping that that seed would empower other people to take it to a place that transcended what you thought it was capable of being. That to me is the ultimate form of direction, the ultimate form of alchemy, and it's the reason why you return to it again and again. Does that make sense? If I may say, I think that's beautifully put. And I think it's very important that we should, it's so easy to get cynical in this awful world that we have to work in, nowhere worse than Hollywood to work in. But it is, you're absolutely right, you have to hold on to that little, that seed, as you say, because if we let that go, it'll mm -hmm. just be rubbish. It'll be, you know, these awful movies they make nowadays of people puking on each other and so on. What do you call these, you know, these things that college kids go to, which is the only thing that seems to be financed these days. You have to hold on. And it'll be people like us that will be heroic. We're the people who <coughs> carry the flame. If we don't, nobody else will. Hollywood is practically destroyed. 
Now, it's very interesting that the cable stations like Netflix, I mean, Netflix is now making feature films that will only be shown on television. Netflix and play, uh, companies like that are becoming the new Hollywood studios. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting. I mean, they're awash with money. So they can do what they like. The problem is, what they like will be what they think you know, the great mass of people were like. So it's, it's going to be harder and harder to get small things done. I mean, the, uh, I've been working, in, given this year, to, to write for the screen. And what I've discovered is that what the television stations want is down to Abbey. They want dumb stuff. They want stuff that people will sit in front of and that they don't have to... I mean, movies were always... It was always good to sit in front of a movie with a bowl of popcorn and have a good time. But Downton Abbey is so... I mean, I, my daughter forced me to watch two episodes of it. And I thought it was absolutely hideous. When you think... You see, you, you're all too young to remember. But when I think back to the 60s and 70s, and what BBC and, and ITV, the kind of drama that they made in those days, was real stuff, real stuff. Now it's, it's, I hate to use the term, I hate the awful term, but it is dumbing down to a really dangerous point. So we have to, as you said, we have to keep that seed going. And if we don't, nobody else will. You know, there's a whole world of money people out there, all the key grips and the caterers who know how scripts should be written and how movies should be directed. We have to keep our nerve. Sorry. Listening to John and Terry, round of applause. It's true. We, we just we have to hold on. It's very difficult. Very difficult to fight the money people because the last thing I say, as we know, always the movies. People thought they were run by studio executives and so on. They were run by accountants. The studios were run by accountants. Unfortunately, now the new movies are being run by lawyers. Oh, I know what Shakespeare Where are the lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> and just listening to what John and Terry were saying, it strikes me, I'll quote Ian Forster, only connect. Right? Only connect. You're writing a story that you hope will connect with one person sitting alone or in a crowded room. Lisa, you began writing on the web. Mm -hmm. And what's it like to connect with so many people you didn't even know they were out there reading your stuff? And then how did they respond when they didn't like what you wrote? Were you the, were you the victim of any trollers? <laughs> Um, well, first off, it's, it's, it's the amazing thing is, is the instantaneous feedback the that review. you get when you write um, for anyone online. And when I wrote the blog, and it was our end of Ireland, and it was a kind of an augmented version of my own reality. I was living in a council estate in Galway at the time, and looking out the window and looking at the kind of mini dramas that would occur in this tiny knot of houses. But obviously, if you write your own life, it's going to be incredibly boring. So I did kind of do gonzo it up a bit, and I did kind of. You know, and I tried to make it entertaining because I think at the at the end of the day, my I want to I want to connect with people, yes, but I also want I also everything I write should be like an onion. There should be an entertainment should be the top thing. People should read it and love it, and hopefully you will get the few that drill down and get something a kernel of something bigger. But anyway, so um, I did kind of augment it and I did try to make it funny and put in a lot of humor in there, and it did start taking off very very fast, and people started reading it are linking to other people and stuff like that so it it was it was it was interesting i mean you are 
then writing for an audience that you know is there, that will make demands of you. That will, I used to have one girl that would never comment, never ever <coughs> get in touch with me, unless she didn't like what I'd written. In which case she go, uh, you've done better. And it was like, it was like an instant. Now I know you get that now kind of, <coughs> with the likes of Goodreads and stuff with your novel, and if you wish to look up what people are saying about it, you get it straight away, people go, eh, 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 eh. or, oh, which is much nicer. Um, so on that, but I never got anybody kind of trolly on that side of things because it was a personal blog and people liked it, liked it. And, and it kind of was a lovely little bubble. It kind of felt like a little community. I was at the center kind of turning out this stuff and everyone was kind of consuming it. Um, but I went on to write for other sites. I wrote for a while for the journal.ie, um, which was an education really, um, kind of coming from this little community of, of readers that kind of, went where I was going and kind of went with it with a with an open kind of mind and, and kind of whatever journey I wanted to take Monday go along for the crack, you know. To people who literally were there quite happy I just used the word literally wrong. Oh quite happily would tear down every single thing you said just for the sake of saying it. And it was just oh, it didn't last long at it. It was agonizing. And I, I kind of I got even plug ins to everything to turn off comments and stuff like that. But you still had people who really wanted to let you know how shit you were, and would contact you via email or via Twitter or via whatever, and it was just—it's amusing, really, because you're like going. Oh, why? Why, why, why do you do this? Well, I stopped. <laughs> it's like, well, you I try to read, read reviews, and they don't listen to people. Oh no, God! You try not to. It does get to you though, because I mean, when you're trying to do something, you're trying to just put across something. You're trying to put it in a, a you know, your. Yeah, but you're doing something for yourself. Yeah, but this was right? when I if was If it brings to other people, that's a nice coincidence. You're doing it for yourself. Don't listen to people. This would have been kind of columns about kind of social issues and stuff like that. So I mean, it was it was it and wasn't it was the internet quite as well. yeah, it wasn't quite journalism, but it wasn't quite fiction either. So <laughs> you know, it definitely when people said this is terrible journalism, I go, well, there's a reason for that. I'm not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, to, to never apologize, that, never explain. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to go from that and just to kind of be able to shut everything down again yeah. and go back into fiction. When I say go back into fiction, I've always written fiction. The blog was not a lead-in to fiction. The blog was just something that kept me going <coughs> creatively. I always wrote fiction. I've been writing fiction all my life. I've been, I've been doing it at school when I should have been doing it, which is why I was shy at my leaving cert. Um, <laughs> so to, to be able to go from this kind of very noisy sphere, which is fantastic. The internet is amazing in that there's so many opportunities. There's so many ways to get what you want to say out there immediately and have people kind of, you know, give you feedback immediately. That's great. But to be able to go back in and just just have this internal thing that you're trying to mm. put down on a page that you're shaping yourself. Oh, it's heaven to get back to it. It's, and, and like it is agonizing, it's painful, it's horrible. It's n like I, again, my own worst project about John put there. I, nobody, I'm never happy with anything. I write it, come downstairs, I'm in terrible moods and I'm going, oh, this is rubbish, rubbish, everything. But it's still <coughs> much, much better just to be able to kind of work it out by yourself. And the idea of collaborative work I, you know, I supposedly have something in the future that will have collaborative work involved, and I'm just kind of going into it with great trepidation, kind of going, oh, I can't imagine having to work with somebody else. So you, you guys have actually made me feel a lot better. <laughs> That's good. I mean, about what you're saying there, it's actually one of the things that most freaks me out about working in this field is the level of immediacy that's, that people require and demand. 
Like it's like instant. You better entertain me in ten seconds yeah. or I'm turning you off. Mm. And you're like, okay, so I've got to do something really quick. And inevitably it kind of cheapens probably whatever you might like to say. So when you say you want to go back and get the space and get the time that someone will take and pick up and invest in, I mean that's like got to be like a really exciting prospect because even with films, especially with Netflix, oh five minutes in, not not into it, I'll turn it off. I and mean, it's just everything is so disposable. And like when you were saying about kind of BBC drama in this in the eighties and stuff, it just instantly made me think of like the John McCarry adaptations. You have like scenes where the character develops photo photographs in real time, and that was like a level of investment that people were like buying into the kind of the world and the characters. And I just think for obviously for you're saying to work in that kind of where it's so kind of cutthroat in terms of what people are demanding in terms of content, it's like the great it's thing terrifying. About, the great thing about writing novels is there's such a huge subsection of readers who will. I've started so I'll finish, which yeah, I get, you exactly. still get not, no I don't I don't read novels like that myself, but I love the fact that other people do. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, the I think the idea though of, of um, being creative in writing is that if it were easy, everyone would do it and it wouldn't be good. It's gotta be hard. Yeah. Because then everyone would be writing and how many people would be good writers? I'd be very suspicious of something that came too easy. Yeah, everybody is writing. There's a wonderful well, they're typing, John. It doesn't mean that they're writing. Yeah, 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 it's typing. There's a wonderful thing in Dostoevsky's notes from Underground, where the Underground man says, people like me, we've been kept down, but someday we will break out and we will talk and talk and talk. That moment has arrived. <laughs> Uh, Jim, if I can bring you in before you arrived, John was talking about the the way Hollywood has changed. We were, he was talking about the you know he'd love to have been a writer back in the forties, and you know Paramount a lot writing for Barbara Stanwyck or whatever. How do you, how have movies changed since you started? God, I mean you just you finished shooting um, Secret Scripture. Yeah, well, I I don't know. They've changed because there's less getting made. Um, they've changed because. TV has taken over, and you know, this TV series has taken over a lot from movies, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'd say they've essentially changed because of the internet, wouldn't you? Yeah. Streaming. Uh, I just see it as the big, you know, Hollywood monster can now control the world through streaming, so. You know, all the terrestrial broadcasters will go and, you know. But does that change the way you tell a story? Because a friend was saying there, if you don't entertain me in five seconds or ten seconds, I'm changing the channel. Because when we were going to the movies as kids, we couldn't change the channel. And we certainly couldn't leave the cinema. We would never thought of it. So how does that, how does that as you're saying, the internet and the format, does that mean you have to tell the story more quickly? Or you've got to come up with, friend was saying, gimmicks? I don't know, you know, uh, I don't, I mean, I can't, uh, but, well, I don't give a fuck, you know, like, what they think, you know, I'm not sitting there trying to figure it out all the time of, like, do I have to be quicker because of the internet, you know, I just do my own thing, really, you know, and uh, I find it very hard to, uh, you know, I don't think I'm a writer like John Banville or anything like that, you know, I, I, I'm just like more like a director who mm. has to write sometimes to get things <laughs> it, it done, you know, so I just lay out like a little 
plan, like a little action thing, and try to figure it from there. Right. I think there's a difference between the verbal culture and the visual, and we're very in. Yeah, I think in Ireland we're in first gear visually. Yeah. Okay. You know. And verbally we're in fifth. Can I bring Christian in here because um, Jim was mentioning television and you've written extensively for television and you had then alluded to a very unfortunate event. <laughs> Is this too painful to bring up? No, not at all, no. It's a good war story, so I don't mind. Uh, <laughs> What's it? Um, well, Christian yeah. was writing for EastEnders at the time for BBC and. Sure. Well, I got sacked by EastEnders, um, but I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you a bit about how, how it came about. I mean, Terry referred earlier to... Which was better, working for them or being sacked? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It makes a story. It does, it does make a better story, yeah. And I, I, I bet you haven't been sacked by EastEnders. <laughs> Wouldn't mind trying. Um, but, uh, yeah, I... Um, and this also, also relates to... We are talking as well about... You know, ki you know, working with kids around, and um, I've got I've got a five-year-old son and a, a nine-month-old daughter, both of whom are in the house, and so at any one time I can have my son screaming from the bathroom, "Daddy, come wipe my bum!" Or my wife coming downstairs saying, "Thea's got a pooey nappy," so I don't get a lot of work done anymore. Um, but f uh, in two thousand and eleven, um, I uh, I was really struggling financially, um, and I was doing some screenwriting teaching, but I wasn't making much money, so I. Um, I applied through the BBC Writers Academy, uh, which trains eight, eight writers a year to write for their continuing dramas, their soaps, um, EastEnders, Doctors, Casualty and Holby City. They're shows I hadn't particularly watched, um, but, which I, but which regularly employ writers. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's so tough to get by financially as, as, as a writer. So uh, what you do is you go to London for three months um, where you're trained to write for these shows uh, by John York. The, the, Academy since wound up, um, but this is back back then it was still going. You do three months of training on the shows, uh, during which you analyse a lot of films. In fact, it was more like a cinema mm. immersion, and it, the training was, was just fantastic. Um, and you write and you write and you write, and then for the, the following twelve months, you write an episode of each of the shows. So you, you casually hold the Eastenders and Doctors, um, and I suppose um, uh, there's a few. I guess there's a few things to, to sort of mention about it. Um, it, well, in terms of, of casualties, the first show I went on to, and um, uh, you've got to get your head around the whole medical side of things. You've got to pitch a couple of medical guest stories in addition to the, the serial elements that you're given. So in terms of storytelling in this particular world, you are effectively... It's not about you, it's about the show, mm -hmm. uh, and it's about the execs who run the show because it's their vision of the show that you're trying to serve. And so your job, therefore, is to... Uh, write the characters in the way they want them to be written um, and uh, I remember at one point questioning a note from my script editor and um, like four or five pages of note he says and I said I, I, that's just bullshit I don't agree with that. I'm not doing that and he said oh okay he said but that, that's an exact note I said okay what do you mean he said that note note came from one of the execs so um, so so they, they'll have a conversation that goes like this oh look it, the next draft has come in and Christian didn't address the note oh so we'll get someone else Grant and he said, they won't 
discuss it with you, you'll be sacked in a heartbeat. So I said, okay, thank you. From now on, tell me exactly which the exact notes are, which ones I can ignore. <laughs> so that <laughs> helped me get through, that, that helped just about get through. Um, I nearly got sacked on Casualty, I just about got through. Um, Holby City was next. Um, I went over to Holby City for an overnight visit after my second draft. I was called in by the exec on that show. Um, and he said, so uh, Christian, how, how are things going on the show? I, I uh, grand, grand, you know, it's nice to be over. Yeah, yeah, you, it, you're a little bit behind where we'd like you to be. Um, and uh, maybe we um, need you to do a bit more. I spent the next week in, the ho in a hotel down the road, rewriting, so rewriting. It's a terrible, a bit more. It's always just yeah. a terrible, terrible phrase, isn't it? Yeah. And how much is a bit? Yeah. How much is a bit? And, not, and I just about just about got through that. You feel like you're spat out the other end, and um, and then I went on to EastEnders, and everyone was saying oh, EastEnders would be grand. There's all that you don't have all that medical shit, and it'd be grand. <laughs> and my script editor, uh, who, who was from Belfast, said it'd be grand. Yeah, you're Irish. You're Irish. We're Irish. It'll be great. We'll get on fantastically together. Hun, she kept calling me Hun. Everything was Hun. And uh, I remember from my commissioning meeting where you, you, you go over and you, because you, you, you're given a story document and you have to say, this is how I'm going to tell these stories. And during the Writers Academy, one of the writers, Sarah Phelps, came into us. She'd written 97 episodes of EastEnders. And she said to me, she said, she'd got she got to sp spray your scent all over the script and make it yours and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to fucking, you know. So, uh, but of course, you've got to stay within the, what's the parameters because it's still their, their show. Um, and, uh, and then after the second draft, uh, thinking I'd done brilliant work and this was going to be great. And, um, and as, as well as which, everybody knew uh, that I, like all my neighbours, all my friends in Galway knew that this is the, I was writing for EastEnders. And they, that's what they were kind of into, because they watched EastEnders. Um, and after the second draft, I got a phone call from the, uh, not my script editor, but her, her boss, saying, Hi, um, I'm, afraid, um, I'm afraid it's not really working out. Um, we just think you're a bit behind again, and um, and uh, and I said, well, what are the notes? Don't worry, I'll get there. She says, well, um, no, we're taking off the episode, and I said, ah, come on, look, you know, da da, and then she says, and, and the, the 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 new writer had started two days ago. This was a Monday, so they've been sacked on the Friday and the Saturday they started the new writer, and I said, look, I said, come on, let me do it, and I said, and and I pleaded so passionately to be given a, another chance that they said to me within the, within an hour, they said, look, I tell you what, we will let you continue on the episode on a shadow basis, so you can write it uncredited and unpaid. <laughs> and if we think it's any good, then we might give you another episode one day. What a bonus. And I remember <laughs> saying, to, saying to John York around the Writers Academy, who, who I phoned, and I said, fuck that. And he said to me, don't be a dick, he said. He says, it's a miracle they're giving you another chance, he said. He said, that's the world you're in. Right. He says, take the other chance. So the next six weeks, coming up to Christmas, unpaid, working on it with um, a, an ex-East Enders script editor who said, this is a brilliant script, well done, sent it in to them. They never read it. They never wow. fucking read it. Okay. Well, but, look, uh, I'm going to have to go into the <laughs> I'll tell you a story that might comfort you. I was talking to Dennis, I would call him Dennis Lehane, but Dennis Lehane, you know, the guy who wrote The Wire and all that. And he said, um, he said, yeah, I, I did this script recently. <coughs> was it? doesn't matter what it was, but he said, I sent it into them, and they said, Dennis, this is just superb. This is, oh, this is amazing work. We're casting already. Come in and talk to us. Dennis went in. They said, this is, Dennis, this is amazing. By the way, the third act is gone. <laughs> <laughs> he said, 
Oh, all right. Um, well, I guess we could lose that. Um, but sort of the first ten minutes depends on that. Is it? Yeah, the that's gone as well. <laughs> and he said, um, uh, what about that kind of dramatic coup that I had where the love interest gets killed halfway through? Uh, yeah, she's not in it anymore. <laughs> and he realized that the thing had been so doctored, it wasn't a script anymore. But as they were showing him out, they were still shaking his and ripping him out and saying, this is wonderful work, this is wonderful work. That's, uh, the last thing I say, Ian McEwen had a wonderful thing. He said, oh, the movies, yeah, it's great. They fly you out to the coast, you sit around the pool looking at the girls in their bikinis, drinking drinks with little uh, paper umbrellas in them, and then you get betrayed. <laughs> Kind of sums up television, I think. All right, Jim. I'm sorry, I have to go. Right over here. Well, we'll give John a round of applause. Yeah. Good night. I can see you're all going to get drunk. We've all been in bed together before the evening. So, so Christian, pick up what you said about Writers Academy. Yeah. Um, is there anybody on the panel who advocates learning how to write, learning how to direct, learning how to work like that? Or is it much more beneficial to do it on your own? Find your own voice, as you said, spray your scent all over the place. Paul, Writers Academy, do you advocate Writers Academy? Learning how to write a book. Um, uh, well, I think I think writing is very different because, in so far as I've experienced it, which is very little, um, I was really surprised at how prescriptive the notes were. Mm. So um, I, I just got I just got one set of notes, but they're and they're all, as John was saying, they, they all started like this is amazing, this is like, this is a great piece of work. However, you know, and however it was like was you know basically change everything, you know, and it's 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 not hitting. It's 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 there's it's not a particular genre. I can't understand the storyline or the characters. You know, like uh, it was it was really. S when you get notes from an editor, um, like often they can be critical, but they're they're much. Uh, they're helpful. Well, no, well, sometimes they're not that helpful because, like, sometimes they're 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 they're, they're kind of subtle to a fault, and they go like, oh, it's it's you know, it's, it's they're, they're very general, and you're kind of left just sort of scratching your head. Um, but you do, but you do have to find a way. So really, what they're saying is, like, try again. You're not quite hitting us. So go back into your brain uh, and sort out this this problem. Uh, whereas I think sort of the, the, with regard to the script writing process, um, like someone else is, is coming in and saying, like, I have a better way of writing this story than you. So do it this way. Uh, and that, that's that's a really, I mean, you know, you don't like to think of yourself as a precious person. You know, you like to think of yourself of being open to, to suggestion. But it's like it's hard not to not to bristle, you know? Um, and then you have to remember that, uh, well, like when I was when I was young, I really wanted to write movies. That's, that's what I wanted to do more than anything. I, I was, I, I remember um, Twin Peaks started when I was in, in school and I was obsessed with Twin Peaks and, and David Lynch and there's this great wave of um, indie American filmmakers like Linklater and Cusman Sant and, and Soderbergh and Hal Hartley and all these people, and I, was, I loved all those films, you know, and I really wanted to go ahead and make movies uh, like that. Uh, and then I, I sort of realized kind of reasonably quickly that um, that there's so much money involved that you, you don't really, how could you have any control? Like, I mean, the overheads of being a writer are, are almost completely 
non-existent. You know, you, you need somewhere to work quietly, you know, or, or somewhere noisy and, and a good set of earplugs, whatever it might be. Um, and beyond that, you've got you've got complete control, you know, because like no one's no one's losing money on you sitting in your, your little office by yourself. So you can kind of do what you want. Um, and I think that's uh, kind of the big lesson that I had, or I'm trying to learn with regard to sort of screenwriting, is just the fact that, uh, like, to a degree, like it's not it's not your story. Like, there are people who who say, well, when I'm I'm kicking in. You know, a million quid or whatever it might be. So, so it is going to be a robot, or it is going to be a robot dog, or if a dog kills a robot, or it might be. Um, so, so uh, with regard to writers' academies, like maybe they do make sense. Uh, it's a great film called Adaptation, uh, where Charlie Kaufman goes to. Uh, he's this. He's, he's Charlie Kaufman. He goes to Robert McKee. He goes to Robert McKee, and he's going. He's saying to Robert McKee, like, you know what? There is no stories. Nothing ever happens. And Robert McKee goes in this tirade. I'd have a war that was full of incident and stories and so forth. Um, and Robert McKee, to that degree, has a point. Um, but but in, in like writing masters, I did a writing masters, uh, a fiction writing masters in England, and really all it was was just uh, time and space to work uh, without without sort of people, you know, uh, hassling you. So you, 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 under this kind of mantle, because it was a university, you know, working on your book suddenly acquired this this veneer of, of respectability. You know, uh, so you could say I'm going up to this this master's program instead of saying I'm going to spend nine months, you know, sitting in a, a basement writing this kind of crazy. Um, so, so in that regard, I found it really helpful, and I found it helpful uh, in terms of starting to think of myself as a writer. You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to starting to think of myself as a, as a bum or a tramp or a, or a, a, a loser, or a maverick, or a failure, you know, whatever. Um, so those things were immensely helpful, but but I think in terms of like of uh, like a program you can follow, but whereby you learn how to write, uh, I, I I I don't no I don't think that works. But even on the like even on the the in the writers' academy, ultimately the, your the encouragement is to is to is to what they want is your is, is the irony is that what what they want is your voice or what they say is what they want is your voice and the, and the, the only way to do well in that world is to to trust your instincts and to trust your voice in fact because when you tr if you try to give them what they want i remember i have, had a meeting on another show which wasn't going particularly well and uh, the the exec said to me um but you're addressing the notes why the fuck are you addressing the notes and i said they're your notes you gave me the notes and he said i don't want you to do the fucking notes well, I said, why did you give them to me? He says, I, he says, I didn't know what the fuck was wrong with it, so I gave you the notes. But what I wanted you to do was figure out something to, to, to find out what was wrong with it yourself. And they were just a guide. But it, I don't care about the notes. What I want is it to be good. But I want it to be good in the way that only you can make it good. Because otherwise, it's just generic. Yeah. And I kind of I thought, actually, yeah, he's telling me something really valuable here. Right. You know, and, and ultimately, it comes down to that. And on, the, on these shows, like Sarah Phelps, who I talked about, spraying the scent on the script, 97 episodes of EastEnders, tough as nails. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. Um, and you meet a lot of, on these shows, uh, cranky, tough writers who are, are serving a show, but they're doing it in their, in their way. They're, 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 their voice is quite singular. That isn't apparent necessarily when you watch the show as such. Um, but ultimately, it, com it comes down to that. So you, I guess the feeling is if you can survive it. And all, all the Writers' Academy tries to give you is... Is, is technique the tools yeah. the tools that we all intuitively know anyway mm -hmm. um, and in a way it gives you access to write for the shows yeah. um, 
uh, and to, to then use tools that, that writers have and have always had, I think. Yeah. So, you know, I think, and ultimately the message was tr trust your voice. And I think where I, the struggle that I would have had at times would have been, um, would have been losing confidence and thinking, right. what do I want? And as soon as you say, what, tell me what you want, you you're done for. Yeah. And kind of rightly so, because that's not why you're there. But don't you think that the, it basically now that the American writers are like way ahead of everybody? I do, yeah. I mean, I mean, like if we're talking about Netflix or, you know, um, HBO or yeah. you know Sopranos, Breaking Bad. Yeah. I mean, these these level. are the yeah these are the shows that you want to be. They, there's yeah. rewards. It's all. It's you know if the rewards aren't there, the competition's not there. Do you know what I mean? Perhaps yeah. I mean I how they ch I think as well in America the, you know that those shows are run by writers. Yeah. Writers with a vision for a particular show. The and that's yeah. that. Saying saying a show like Holly or Casually or EastEnders, those shows are not run by. They're not run by writers in the you know in the way that the American shows are, and I think that that model, which is so expensive, um, I, I understand, is is is. Uh, I remember Frank Spotnet, um, who wrote for um, X Files, giving a talk in Galway. And he he talked about. He says and he he tried to replicate that model um, on a show called Hunted, I think, and he he, he, he and they they did six months of um, story room, but he said just the sheer cost of that terrified the broadcaster um, and in fact the, the UK writers found it really odd to, to have to go into work and work from nine to six every day so almost kind of from a television culture point of view it, it hasn't it hasn't been yeah, but I think it I, I don't know like I grew up being kind of much more um, lefty you know what I mean mm. Marx is supposed to be and all this and I kind of still think that way and I think that the Americans just fucking took over everything they destroyed the European cinema by Hollywood, then now they're destroying the TV. But do you, are you not a fan monster of... monster machine. Do you, but say, the, like the classic American, you know, the classic age of... Like, are you not a fan of American talent? Like, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, do you not love those shows, or...? Yeah, but I just think they're... Yeah, I do. And I, you know, I some, if I watch them, I like watch them, but I'm always at the end when they're over, I kind of don't know what they were all about. Yeah. I never have a feeling after watching the any TV series that I have of watching a movie. Mm. Yeah, like The Godfather. Or it's because they're longer. It's because they're longer, but there's no end. It's striptease for fucking six years or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Isn't it? Really? Well, Christian was saying there about the, 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 you were alluding to the golden age of TV writing, the golden age yeah. of Hollywood. And Paul, you mentioned Robert McKee. And I, I've always been struck by Robert McKee and you know his Bible. And you know, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that. And I think, you know, I've gone through that list and I said, every single brilliant film broke at least one of those mm -hmm. rules. And surely that's a, as a screenwriter, you've got to break whatever you've been told. I mean, Terry, you, you, you teach film, okay? You teach screenwriting in, in teaching. Again, just teaching screenwriting is about empowering somebody to write. It's yeah. not about a bunch of fucking lists or Bibles. Robert McKee's a con man. Ridiculous con man has been protected across the board. The example yeah, that he gives, the one film that he uses, the one film that he uses as the greatest film of all time, was written by 17 writers and nobody had any idea what the fuck the pages they were getting that morning. It's yeah. Casablanca. Casablanca. Yeah. So he's a fucking con man, bully, fool. But I'm not sure he's that bad, but you know, he, he, he's a performer. No, he's, he's an actor. a performer, fair, fair you know. Also, the stuff he's written is rubbish. I think that's the main important thing. That's the, that's if what you're writing is rubbish and you're claiming that you have this inside track, the least you can do is... I'm not suggesting that you have to be a great practitioner to be a I great I went teacher. to his course. Did anybody go to his course? 
Yeah, I went with Cork in 1990, mm. and uh, it was really interesting. And, and I was sitting there like, yeah, and he was doing talking about Casablanca, and he's been sitting on 25 years later, right? <laughs> so, like, just at the end, I put my hands up, and I was like, and uh, I said to him, you know, the way you were saying there, like, about you have to think of a star, he would say, playing the fucking role, you know. And I was like, do you, do you really think that, like, that you think of Jack Nicholson or Tom Cruise? And he was like, yeah, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you never think of your own face on the lead character? You know, he said, no. I said, well, okay. I said, okay. I said, because I, I haven't done that much today, but if there's a dog in the script, he has my face. <laughs> and when he goes, woo, woo, it's me, yeah? So I, I think there's a, a huge difference between being outside the character and inside. Like, you know, the most difficult thing to do in all pa aspects of the medium is empathy. Is to empathize yeah. with the person's, it being the other person's shoes. That's the hard thing to do. And that goes from every level, from character to writing to like what you're saying, understanding the executives and, you know, it's just, can you get into the other person's shoes, you know? And I suppose the important thing there is empathy makes you sympathize with all the characters and means there isn't a villain. I mean, where's the villain in gold? Because well, uh, Robert McKee will say, you've got to have a villain, name your villain. Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's no villains and it's, there's, it's not that straightforward they're all they're all flawed yeah but they um they all mean well you know and are struggling to exist the best they can mm. yeah. i mean the hard thing actually i even think harder is to create a successful film where you don't empathize with the characters i mean yeah i know some people can do it like they're really good ones when you look at like fargo for example barring uh francis mcdormand they're like oh horrific human beings. I think the really good example of that is There Will Be Blood, Daniel Day-Lewis's character yeah. in There Will Be Blood, you know, mm. and here's a guy you can, you're never going to sympathise with him because, you know, he's um, he's awful, but what you can do is kind of respect him because, you know, you do see in, you know, the the uh, the first first 15 minutes of the film, he managed to drag himself 20 miles across the desert with a broken back. You have to elevate kind of the character, the character of the world. That's an interesting, yeah, because Daniel was amazing in that, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember having a big row at Richard Harris, yeah, and it was the scene in the field where he he's talking to the priest, and it was my first, you know, day, like first time, I think it was about two, three days into the shoot, and uh, it, he started acting, and I was like, this is fucking terrible, <laughs> and I was, I thought he's been doing that Camelot show for twelve yeah, years, yeah, you different. know, and I was like, man, all he knows is. I was thinking all this to myself and then he took his hat off and he cried into his hat by which stage I was like he's doing it deliberately fucking see <laughs> this is good you know and by the end I thought it was so bad that I just went like cut <laughs> and then I heard first the cameraman and or the first AD then the cameraman then the entire crew clapping and I had me fucking head down, I was like, what do I say? <laughs> Everything's gone silent. And, like, I didn't know what to say to him, so I say, he said, he just was looking at me, I said, that's the most over-the-top fucking acting I ever saw in my life. And that was chaos. For the next eight weeks, it was hell on earth. 
Was the battle between your husband Just and the battle was like night and day. So I said to him, okay, I know this all sounds nuts because I was like my second movie. So he got his agent and they called me at three in the morning. You know, now you're the director trying to make the movie. It's three in the morning. They wake you up and they come to you and they go the next day and say, do you know the actors didn't get their turnaround? I'm like, I didn't even fucking get the bed. <laughs> they, they lose the sense of humanity. So, but I said to Richard, I said, you know what? I said, I'm not going on with the movie. I'll just stop now. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, because that's a crap scene. And by take seven, he was screaming at me. And I was saying, it's much better now. He said, I'm not acting. <laughs> that's good. That's why it's better, you know. So this went on. And still, if you watch the movie to this day, he could be right because he's actually amazing in the movie. The difference was this. It was exactly what you're saying. So I said to him, we'll build the set. I said, I, re I told him in Ardmore to rebuild this set. We were in fucking somewhere down in Galway. And I deliberately built the set in Ardmore to try and hold some control. You know what I mean? Like, so we went through the entire movie. He promised me he'd reshoot it. We went into Ardmore to watch it. He said, I love myself in that scene. I don't even recognize myself. I can't do better than that. And he wouldn't redo it. But what, if you see, if you see the movie today, you have a choice to make. In the scene, he gets empathy and sympathy. But I felt he shouldn't. And I felt it should be like, you don't have any sympathy for him. Mm -hmm. And by the end, you're going, oh, fuck. I hated this guy for so long. Now he's going to fucking kill everything and himself and the kid. And, but if you have empathy for him, mm -hmm. it's a different ending. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but it can still work. Like the way Brando destroyed Tennessee's play mm -hmm. as, as, the main character, and Blanche de Blas was supposed to be the main character, but this animal came in, who Tennessee's in love with, and wants to fuck deep down, <laughs> and that takes over the story. So, I think, either you're telling the story, or the story's telling you. And 90% of the time, the story's telling you. Most people haven't got control, enough of their own emotions, for them to be telling the story. Like, I always wake up in the middle of editing, going, oh, is that what it's about? <laughs> so like if I've done it and shot it and edited it 50 times and then suddenly go, oh wow, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, and um, you get to those points where you're like, Phew. does that make sense? I'll tell you what I think is the best advice, best book, best advice, but real hard to read, is the poet Hughes on, Ted Hughes on Shakespeare. Right. It's just so... But it's hardcore, probably makes no sense, but the insanity of it is great. And he shows you that how Shakespeare uses the same plot in every play once he hits Hamlet. For the next 20 plays, it's all the fucking same plot. And it's basically main character, a male, kills the female, and destroys the soul. That's the tragedy. And it's, it's amazing to watch the manipulation of how... So, so you don't, I don't even know you need plots. You just need to have one thing to say. You know what I mean? Like, if, yeah. That's it. If you have one thing that's forcing itself out of you, you know what I mean? Like, if you have to write, like you feel Stephen King has to write, God damn You know what I mean? 
And you feel that with John Bamble, I wouldn't say that. You see her, but, you know. <laughs> I always feel he has to write, you know. Well, that's what Terry was saying earlier on. That's what you were saying. You, you, Lisa was saying, you've got to have a reason to write. You can't just sort of say, oh, I think I'll write today. It's either coming from great, great pain or isolation or a need to connect. You know, and I mean, what Jim was saying there, sometimes you're in the elephant suite and, oh, that's what the movie's about. And it strikes me that when, I'd love to read your script for Charlie and then Patrick's Day and then see how you, did you reimagine the film when you were editing it? Or was this exactly how you, how you saw it when you were going to, when you were writing it? No, it's back to that thing we were talking about earlier. And again, what Jim was saying there. The script, and I, I'd protect the script, so it's not a case of treating the script with irreverence. <coughs> that can be dangerous as well. But you go back to that thing, what is that seed? What is that thing? What is that thematic unification that is making this a necessity for you to write? How do you protect that in such a way that you give it to somebody else and they subsequently empower it to such a degree that you are no longer controlling it, but they are taking it to the place where it needs to be? Mm. So with something like Charlie Casanova, which you know, one of the most fucking hated films ever, the thing <coughs> that you set out to make was the very thing that you tried to protect across the board. Right. And with Patrick's Day, Patrick's Day was celebrated and embraced and all those things, but the same fundamental principle, both scripts were written at the same time. But the, th the only thing that was different in them is that the thematic seed that was put in place was completely different. Mm. But the only thing, I, I, again, it's in terms of directing, again, I hate to be fucking filleting you in front of all these people, but I think you're the greatest director oh, yeah. that ever come out of this country. <laughs> 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 No, you don't want to watch Braves. <laughs> I include fucking Houston in there. But anyway, the point is that one of the things that I've seen you do in your films, and one of the things I haven't read about and seen how you work, is that it seems to be constantly about the discovery of that alchemical moment, that cathartic moment, that thing that transcends all of us. If it's about that, then all you can do is continuously pursue it, no matter what the consequence might be. At least you're pursuing something that is transcending your ego and your blindness. Yeah. If, however, you're trying to protect the script because you're a fucking genius, you're in trouble already. If you're trying to protect the film because you're a fucking genius, you're in trouble already. Mm -hmm. Because the only thing that's going to survive is that seed that sits alone in a dark room where either an individual in a bedsit or a bunch of people in a cinema are having a collective cathartic experience that you can't claim any copyright over, but that they own. And the only way that that can possibly happen, if you're fucking lucky, billion to one shot, is that from the seed onwards, you did it for the right reason. Right, but what happens... Do you adjust it when you lose, when you realize that was the original idea and now I've got to accept that it's changed? But change, like there, there are great producers out there and there are illiterate cunts out there. It's fucking scum who think that because they're putting money on the table they have the right to an opinion. They can do untold damage to a script, but there are also others who can give you an insight that transcended your capacity to understand that at that time. And if you're lucky enough and open enough, you can make that work in a way that still protects that original seed but enhances the overall script. Mm. Just picking up, Jim, on what you said there, where you were, had the little, well, big confrontation with Richard Harris on your third day. The last conversation we had with uh, Dervla Walsh, and Dervla was telling of, of a, when she was making um, a group film, the adaptation of the Royal Dow story. And Dustin Hoffman was cast, and they were doing a read-through. And Dustin Hoffman was reading about 10 minutes into the read-through. You know, Dervla was going, there's something wrong here. This just is, it's, it's, it's flat. And Dustin Hoffman turned to so what do you think? And she said, it's not really, you know, he's lonely, Dustin, he's not depressed. And she had to tell him, and I was wondering from Derva's point of view, did she think that Dustin Hoffman was testing her? Because this was the read-through. And was the actor, who is much more powerful, let's face it, Dustin Hoffman, much more powerful than Derva would be at, at that stage. What, if I give a flat reading, 
is she going to be strong enough to tell me the truth, and then I'm going to trust her as a director? Because if she said, oh, it's fantastic, he was going to, I can dial this in, I'm not going to turn up. So for me, it's really, really important to be completely honest all the time. So maybe these notes, suffering as they are, are honestly intended, and you've got to say, okay, I will respond to it, or in your case, battle, uh, fight for your corner and say, I, I'm right on this one, you can't fire me. It's not a, it's not a speech, it's a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, it's you know, like it's, uh, you know, it was, it's, I was trying to do, do this movie, The Secret Scripture, and it, it, the reason I'm doing it is because Johnny Ferguson asked me to do it, who was the writer, and I was trying to help him rewrite it, and then he died, and I thought, oh, that's weird, and he was young, and I thought, I'll do the movie. It's just one of those, I can't explain that, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You just go, okay, seems like the right thing to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, but I know I'm missing this shot in it, you know, and I haven't done the shot, and I keep talking about it, but, like, as I get towards the, trying to figure out what it's about, like, I just keep thinking it's about baptism, but I don't have any shot of baptism. And I think then about, it's about cults. Like, here's this male cult religion Catholic priests who are who are chased. It's like what? You know, and here's baptism where you take the child and you wash it because it's unclean in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So you got this fucking male world that we all inhabit and all nod. Yeah, <coughs> that's the narrative we're all in, and it's insane. Like the whole fucking narrative's insane. So we're sitting in a room now and we're talking about writing as something that's internal to the room you know what I mean in other words we're all out here with something like right in between us all somebody's projecting this way somebody's projecting that way both are belief systems mm -hmm. so the belief system predates the movie so if you don't fit in with the belief system you won't get that big an audience but if you fit in with the belief system you will get an audience so now the American belief system is a very specific thing. If you watch all the new movies, it's all a superhero, just one guy fucking doing whatever, killing the world. And so that's their kind of central belief system. So I think that a lot of the time you have to, it's, it's about manipulation within, you're right, it's the ascent. What, every time a movie starts, if you go, I don't believe it, it's over. Mm -hmm. So it's not about mythology, it's not about narrative, it's about belief. Do you believe it? So if you have Brando breaking through the wall of a well-constructed play in a movie, and he's so amazing and you believe it, the rest doesn't matter. If Daniel's breaking through in that character, the rest doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Daniel was saying to me how great Paul Dana were, who were some of their actors in it were. I was going, I didn't think they were that good. I mean, Jeff was just me, you know. No, no, I mean, like, it was definitely I was like, Daniel's just doing the fucking, on his own, out there, like, amazing. Yeah. I heard actually that when they started making the movie, Paul Dano had uh, replaced the original actor. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Dano didn't think that the kid was up to it. Wow. Which I think well, is again, yeah, it's an honest thing. You know, it, it hurt like hell, I'm sure, for the actor. But can you imagine had that movie been completed with that same actor, he would have been destroyed in the face of Daniel De Lewis. And everyone has said that movie was great, except that part sucked. But don't you think Daniel does that sometimes? <laughs> He's just a great actor. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
like the wife in Lincoln, I thought she's just fucking disappeared. Yeah. Like she wasn't there. Mm. Same Leonardo DiCaprio in Gangs of New York. It was yeah. very harsh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard for anybody to be on the same screen as them. So yeah. if you have someone who can actually keep their head above water and while being on the same screen as them, then that's yeah. a job well done. I think, yeah. But yeah, but it, 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 Judy, I think of a director or a writer is to keep chaos in the room. Yeah, that's what Wenmore said. You want to keep the window open for the coincidence to come in. Yeah, just things. let the chaos be there. Let what's going to happen next. And if you have such control, you can't have that. You have a corset. You have opera. Mm-hmm. You've got. You yeah, know what I mean? to work for you with a uh, Richard. Well, Allison. like he, he, Leonardo in Gangs of New York is just an example of a person who I could never even get near visually as a director. Scorsese not having a fucking clue a script, no clue. So Leonardo's father gets killed, Liam Neeson, yeah, Hamlet. He comes back for revenge. The original story is about Hamlet peeling a, you know, piece of wood, and he stabs the king. That's the original Danish story. Well, no. Once you replace Hamlet carving the wood with Daniel being the fucking butcher, he's got nothing to do. Leonardo should be doing this for the entire movie and kill Daniel in the end. Now he's got a cock. Now he's no dick. Daniel's got all the dick and Leonardo's got nothing. And it's not his fault because he's a great actor. But he doesn't look good because he's in the wrong dramatic position. You can, I can get any actor, I'll tell you, in any movie, make <coughs> him look good, make him look bad. Depends the way I put it. And you can do that all the time, all day. And all human beings are open to that. You can make them look good, you can make them look bad. Like the Greek fella, two days ago he's tough, now he's not, next week he's good. You know what I mean? It's like... But it's the belief system that we're operating in that... that so I say we're, we're all in a belief system where we're all in the provinces. That, you know, so it's how do you get into... Like, your movies have the the value of having that thing of kind of chaos and you don't know what's going to happen next and you know you're, you might get edgy with them and and that's unique I think it's very hard to be unique you know and I don't know I just don't fucking get it like why it's so obvious in 2008 the economy collapsed they decided you know what we can't make any more of these dramas because that's talky 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 and we can't do that worldwide on screens because we have to drive people into screens. But we can do it on TV because talky, talky, talky works on TV. So we take all the dramas off the screens, put them on the TV and say, you know what, nobody wants to go to see dramas in the cinema anymore. When the fuck did that happen? <laughs> when they decided. Because it's a slate of hand and it's a game and it's a, it's a financial monetary game where they've all the control. Dave's a distribution muscle. The movie doesn't exist unless it exists in America. Niall and Brent, do you have that face with that problem, or do you are you looking for ever looking for American funding, or you, do you think about the American market when you're? Um, this uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, we're just kind of used to not people seeing our films, but uh, <laughs> kind of part of the process. Um, the Look, you know, everyone, everyone wants to get a, a, a theatrical release in the US for their film. Mm. Um, Small Engine Repair didn't 
didn't get when it got it got a release, but not theatrical. But did so, you write it with that in mind, or did you write write it with let's ignore what the American market? No, yeah, I mean, no, you, you, it, it wasn't an issue. Go, I mean, certainly gold. I mean, with small engine pair with American country music, so maybe there was some kind of, you know, some distributors thought it would play down well down the south, mm -hmm. but um, with gold. No, I mean, no, it's not really a factor when you're writing or directing it. Are you going to, I mean, you know, you hope it will get released somewhere. Right. Um, you hope the uh, people who are, you know, financing it aren't pissed off at you. Um, but no, it's not really a factor. You, right. you, just, you just hope for it, you know. Lisa, you just, wait, sorry. We're going to have to wrap oh, really? it up. Maybe, okay. maybe we could just open it up to the floor. Sorry, okay, yeah. Can I, I ask a question, actually? <laughs> just, you're talking about your... Jim, you're talking about a belief system, and you were describing it, Terry as kind of your your own seed, or and someone's going about self belief about being your own fan. But I'm just kind of thinking of the other writers and directors here. Where's that bit where you have like it seems like Lisa, you're tortured sometimes with these people, internet trolls, you know, being critical. Jim, the same with the execs, the same problems that you all have with these voices that you have to kind of listen listen to. But where what's the point? at which you really have to go back to yourself and, and find that belief or has there ever been that struggle where you've kind of lost that point of and gone into the other side of listening too much to other voices or whatever? Can I answer that first? I don't want to hunt the conversation. Yeah. Okay, so last week I had to go with the movie to LA, yeah? And at the last minute I said, I'm fucking put a voice over on because it's all over the place, I have no end. Jeez, I can't have that end because it's crap. So I leave that out and tell them I have to reshoot, right? So I stick a gluey thing together. I go out, they take what I streamed and they put it on like, they videoed it and lost half the picture. And they're now watching, I'm saying, why just do that? And, and the head guy says, cause we don't want it to go around like in a, you know, like that. So I know I can't attack him. So I go and put <coughs> him in the office and say, fuck you as well. You know, and I'm kind of acting, but I know that will get back, they stop it, and they stream it, right? But at the end of it, I did, I got cursed into a range of screening in Santa Monica with an audience, right, where it went really well. Now, once it goes well with the audience, once you get past all these opinions and you can get it to the general public, you know the truth. So none of these people matter if you have a general public. It's just where is your general public? Where is your audience? So you have to find your audience. And when you have your audience, they tell you, you know, it's, it's kind of beyond you then. Because your, our conscious level is up here. It's kind of right wing or right brain and we're thinking this, this, this. But when you get a crowd, it's the subconscious, it's fried, it's young. They just go, why the fuck do you do that? And you go, yeah, why do we fucking do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, those voices don't really, you can get rid of them really quick by going, well, let's show it to an audience. But every single director I ever met is afraid of showing it to the audience because they're all in a system. All the American directors are in a system where they're the ones getting paid. They're all on the gravy train, and nobody wants to destroy. And they're all terrified of the preview because they already have the audience. And when you don't have the audience like we don't, then you got to go and find the audience. So it doesn't matter to us. We've, I've seen Irish movies that if you took out 
of Ireland to England, America, or whatever, and showed it to the audience, and fixed tiny scenes, you'd have hits. We never do that. Why? Because we're like state, we're a state organization, essentially, usually, a little state organization doing little movies for ourselves and never taking it outside and testing it and trying it and going and, you know? So nobody, except in festivals, people get to see their movie. Anyway, rant again. Lisa, you've just been picked up by an American publisher for your book. And is that going to change? You sort of, you may get a little bit of pressure from your agent saying, think about the American market next time. For the next book to consolidate the success of that? The next book's written, so. <laughs> the next thing you're doing? Um, I don't know, I'd never, never, I would never even think about it, I really wouldn't. Um, it, do, it doesn't matter, I, I don't know, you can tell me if I'm, it doesn't matter as much in fiction, I think, as it does in movies, whether you appeal to the Americans or not. Yeah. I think people will buy into it if they like Irish literature. Do you know? I don't know. I wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to me to, to kind of go changing things or to take out things or to to market it towards, I think you're losing, if you're writing fiction, you're completely lost if you try to have a market in mind, maybe have a reader in mind about the market. Probably. It's very difficult to get Americans to watch anything that's not American anyway. Yeah, you know, if they, if, they look, if they look at something, they hear an itch, and you know, and this is a distributor's point of view, they hear an English accent, that's like minus 10% or whatever. You know, it's <laughs> Unless it's Downton Abbey. Unless it's Downton Abbey, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the, the corollary of that is that we all are not aware that we're making American stories. We've been so influenced yeah. Yeah. by yeah. the culture that we're already making it, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's not like, it's not escapable when it's Netflix and NBC and everything on TV is American, like everything. Like when I was a kid, it was all BBC. Yeah. And RT did three dramas in 12 years when I was a kid. Kind of what they do now, isn't it? It is. I just want to ask a quick question. Uh, in terms of Netflix, they're famous for crunching the numbers in all the regions. And they did this massive deal with uh, Adam Sandler. It was yeah. like $60 million because he's a big hit in South America and Central America, right? So they know they're going to get the audience there to get the money back. Isn't the corollary of that that there's a good chance that they'll find and niche programming for sort of more mature audiences, real proper dramas that people will like, because there'll be audiences all around the world, and yeah, they'll be putting it together who will watch those shows. Isn't that better for everybody? Can I answer that? Yeah. I think so. There's an algorithm for it, and they're all about algorithms, and the fact that they're, they're able to digitally map the entire audience. The it's the reason why these shows made House of Cards. On the table was a vampire series, and they noticed that the people who, the major subscribers to Netflix were not teenage kids, adults who wanted stuff like House of Cards, and that's where they did it. So eventually they're going to satisfy themselves with Adam Sandler stuff, and they're going to go, this niche market has not been fulfilled yet. And you know, maybe I'm just blindly optimistic, but there, there is a way out for it. I mean, every so often we think this is the end of cinema. I mean, they said that in 68, for God's sake. You know, and then look what happened next. <laughs> so I think... Uh, what happened there back in 68 or around there was that Jaws and that came out and the cinema switched to the TV and it switched to the 30 second commercial and it went from word of mouth to the 30 second commercial overnight with Jaws mm -hmm. and from that moment on cinema was a TV byproduct. It's just can you drive them out into the cinema with the commercial? 
And Spielberg and Lucas killed that, and now they complain about the fact that they can't get their own movies into the cinema. Mm. You know, but yeah, but okay, but look at it. Let's throw it the other way. I mean, you got my left foot, mate. And when we were talking about when you screened uh, Patrick's Day, you were worried that the movie would not be seen in theaters and not enough people would go to see it. And we have Netflix and we have the online facility to see movies. So, I mean, how did Patrick's Day get made and how did my left foot get made? A beautiful aberration. You know, I, I don't think it's as. I don't think it scares it's me when I hear a phrase like there's an algorithm to it or yeah. for it. That scares the fucking shit out of me. There's an algorithm for it. Patrick's Day, uh, my left foot, I think, is a, one of the perfect case examples where I don't know how much myth is surrounding how it got made and all those kind of things, but uh, apparently the myth is that you asked to direct some episode of a soap opera for Orteen and told no. Kind of it's, true, but it's fucking incomprehensible, but yet that model hasn't changed too fucking much. So the idea of something like Patrick's Day, apparently Patrick's Day did incredibly well in the box office here. Mm. Hasn't paid for a single slice of fucking bread on my table. Mm -hmm. Not did one. incredibly well in what? In the box office here. Yeah. But the Irish box office, an Irish film doing, doing incredibly well in the Irish box office is such an irrelevance. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that the idea of making a film, Patrick said did really well, they got a bunch of awards, they did all those kinds of things, and I'm trying to make another film now, and that other film is literally the response is that you're out of your fucking mind. You really want to make this film now? Yeah. And then you go from that to the reality of going that you literally cannot put food on your table, you literally cannot pay your rent. Yeah. You literally <coughs> cannot do the basic things. Your family are looking at you like you're a cunt. They're going, what is this fucking moron doing? And you go, I'm going to make another movie. It's fucking mad. Yeah. Sorry to end on that fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just got a comment about the fact that Netflix and HBO and Amazon do have an actuarial department that studies the numbers and the demographics. The upside of that is HBO is one of the first networks to service the Spanish-speaking demographic mm. in the United States. 25% of the population, and they go see films more than any other ethnic group. So they're real, it's a real audience, and I think that's Okay, but let me ethnic. ask you a question. Yeah. If 25% of the Spanish people in America are the biggest cinema-going audience, why has there been no Spanish hit film in America in the last 20 years? Because it wasn't HBO. Well, other than Selena. <laughs> yeah, but just, uh, just, uh, just explain, I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, because Americans, you can't get financing for a feature film in a foreign language period. Um, no, it's because the Spanish people, the, the Mexicans who are all the illegals in America think, if it already hasn't been a hit, if it's a Spanish film, it's a bad movie. The way we think here, you know what, once came out, must be crap, because it didn't come out in America yet. Then it comes out in America, it's a hit, we go see it. Because the only place that can tell you it's good is over there, because that's the machine. It's a PR marketing machine. You're right, the costs are so high, you're not dealing with books. Like with Secret Scripture, it sold a million copies, that's huge. But if you were gonna make a movie on that basis, you, you've no chance, you know? It's incredibly grim. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really, no, no, it's, it gets grim when you, you, you don't analyze it as to find where it is your, you've got a fucking horn, right? But you're playing baseball. And there's a fucking guy throwing a hard ball at you, and you gotta hit it out of the park. So don't try and hit to the far end. The only home run is right there, that's where you gotta hit it. You've only got that much space, like he says. Films are for Americans, you know? So if you're trying to. So sometimes, like, there'll be the tiniest thing in a movie that stops it relating. Like, don't have dialogue for the first 10 minutes. If you have dialogue for the first 10 minutes in a movie, the audience are going. 
especially in part of the language they're going, part of accents they don't know. The bottom line goes, Netflix, it is actually doing amazing things for independent films. I mean, people are getting to see shit, they wouldn't go near, they wouldn't touch in the cinema. Yeah, and but nobody's it, getting paid for it. That's true. Okay, so Netflix are doing great things except for the people making movies. Yeah, no, there's, that's the, the dance. It's the same side, as, people are it's the same as music, stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's the same as music, you know, so it's it's getting hard and there has to be a, a you know, I, I'm for fucking China. Let 25% of the movies in, put a, an embargo, put a cost on every American movie that comes in and fucking create your own industry instead of countdown to, why is China allowed only let 25% in and keep 70% of the box office? Because and we give 50 back. Why? But the reason is because they've got such a huge market that the Americans want to get into, and the yeah. Americans are going to negotiate an agreement that the Chinese will agree to. So yeah. that's the way the Americans are getting into it. We've yeah. already had the NATO agreement here. You know, we've got the North American and uh, North yeah. Atlantic Treaty Organization, and that's what we signed up to. So we've got to figure out. And I just think, you know, I, I was just saying to you, Terry, I think with the new technology of the internet, you know, we've got to figure out a way to make that work for us. As you were saying, yeah. filmmakers are not being paid by Netflix, fine, but we'll figure out a way for us to be paid and us to make the movies. Sorry, there's a gentleman at the back, the question. Sorry, I just thought it was interesting what John said before he left, um, you know, that it was before run by uh, accountants and now it's being run by lawyers, and it might explain yeah. why money doesn't trickle down to Terry's great efforts and, and great films, you know, so. Years ago, you had, you had the accountants, now you have the lawyers, state agencies, now have lawyers. It's, it's all part of what John said. And he said, he said before he left, he said uh, about, about Glenn Close, it took 20 years before Albert Knobs came to yeah. So, just on, on what he said, I was just wondering, could Jim expand on that? On why does it take so long for great works to get made? Like, and if I may say, Sheriff Street happened to read it about seven yeah. years ago. It's a fantastic yeah. script. It's going to be Jim's best work. Things like that. Why does it take so long? Why, why does it take so long for Terry to make his next film on the back? But Jim, if you, if you could. Yeah, it's very. You know, like I. The secret scripture was just because there were actresses wanted to do it, you know? Because it's a book that's well known. So. I said, well, fuck, if the actresses want to do it, I'll do it, you know, kind of, I knew it kind of would get made, you know, it's hard when it's, there's only certain things that can get made, you know, um, maybe you have to dumb down and do it cheaper, I don't know, there's, I tried to do Artemis Fowl, you know, at home call for, you know, so it sells 10 million copies, and it's fucking huge and it saved Weinstein books and it made own like really rich and Harvey said to me would you have a go with the script because we haven't been able to get the script right and you're Irish you know so I said okay and I made a mistake instead of him saying you know oh, well yeah give me fucking a million dollars or something <laughs> yeah. I decided I'd take it seriously and try and make it work right so I said well look let me look at the other scripts and he said, which one? I said, well, many do you have? And he said, 16. <laughs> so I said, well, give me a look at the first, the eighth, and the 16th. And they, were, yeah. they were all the same script. And it's, it's, it's really hard to explain, but they, 
they don't know why they don't want to make it. They just know it's like in their pee. They know they don't want to make it. But it's about a gangster kid, yeah? It's about a rebel gangster who takes a hostage. So he's a fucking Iranian now. In an American mindset, he takes a hostage of a fairy. He's a rebel. He's bad order. He's the fucking IRA. He's everything they don't want to see. He's everything that a family won't take a child to see. Which would be a great kids movie. <laughs> but are they going to make it? No. Because it's not in the good order household for children. So you have to... So they would literally... They'd come to own me and said, We love Artemis, but does he have to be a gangster? That's the reason the book sells. Mm -hmm. But it would be the reason the movie is hard to make, you know? Yeah. So there's different things happening in different worlds. Yeah, it reminds me of the Mike Nichols story when he was saying that he was talking about how executives or studios don't recognize what or how a story originates. And they gave him, he was giving an example, he says, really, Mike, you know, you're making Macbeth, does Lady Macbeth have to be so ambitious? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah, because we're telling stories and Torah stories about characters. And Artemis Fowl is, as you said, it's a character. Yeah. So you take that out. Yeah. Just one on Jim earlier. You said that Ireland's in the first in first gear visually. Can you elaborate on that? But only from my own point of view that I actually, you know, if I'm making a movie, I'm kind of like not thinking of the visuals, and I'll move the camera like Max Offals or. You know, I saw this other shot from Spielberg and all. They do that all the time. Oh, they go like, yeah, I, 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 know, I know how to shoot it. That's what they say. I know how to shoot it, you know? And, like, I wouldn't be able to think like that. Do you know what I mean? So my favorite would be, like, um, where I think our equivalent visually is is Basquiat. Do you know that painter? Mm -hmm. He was verbal, kind of bit schizo, and is only drawn the most simplest things about black culture. You know, like he gives Jackie Robinson a, 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 a crown or, but, but they're so fucking simple, the statements. But they're emerging with great energy and great power out of great anger, you know what I mean? So the emotion that's hitting you is so fucking overwhelming, the painting doesn't have to be that good. Now he happens to be a genius, but, so it's like, have you got something to say? Is there enough repression in what you got to say? You know? Like, I just know that the first person that does a fucking IRA story that has the balls to really do it and not be afraid that their terrorists will have a huge hit in You know? Now, we all know we don't want to do that because you go, ooh. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Like, it's... It's like... You gotta crash through the the fear factor. The, the you know people sometimes if you're angry at them they'd rather you express the anger than hide it. But you were saying there. I mean, you were saying when the big Hollywood directors are given the script and say, "I know how to shoot that." Yeah. And what you're saying, and I think that everyone would agree here, is you gotta feel it. I know how that feels. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. Or any, whether you're writing a novel or whether you're writing a screenplay or whether you're an actor, you gotta say, "I know how that feels." Well, feel is invisible, and see is visible, you know what I mean? So invisible is the hardest thing to catch. Mm -hmm. Visible 
is easier to catch but harder to be differentiated as really good at it. You know what I mean? But 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 the visible the, the invisible emotions that a Daniel Day or an actor give, they're they're very hard things to either produce or catch. And it's very hard to be <coughs> visual like your man Anderson was what he did with Daniel, it was really unique, you know, because it had the performance and the visual, do you know what I mean? But uh, I think we come out of the emotional place. The algorithms are interesting, but the algorithms were written to say that if you bundled enough houses together in an insurance scheme, that the price, you could never have a property collapse. <laughs> so the algorithm was right on the wrong basis. So algorithms can get it really fucking wrong, you know? You can blow up the world with algorithms. <laughs> and on that note, can I just ask one last question, just from the point of view of, as a screenwriter with some of the best directors in the country in the room, I would kill myself if I don't ask it. Um, just as I'm a, I'm a screenwriter who doesn't really have any aspirations to direct, so it's kind of interesting to be in the room with you guys. Um, what kind of scripts do you like to see from the point of view of detail? Like, when I started writing, obviously I was writing these really intensely detailed scripts and every breath was scripted and I've been pairing it back and pairing it back to the point where I'm now saying, this guy does a thing, because I leave it up to the director to, how, how much of that do you, do you like to see and how much detail do you like to see on the page? I think you should just do an outline. Yeah. Just do an outline. If the story's there, the story's there. I think it's a waste of time I mean, yeah, for the for the structure, but I think you're better off just writing an outline of what what makes something unique. You know, it's like what do you want to write about? Yeah. What do you want to write about? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> no, but I feel here so all night. What? But what is yeah. it? What is it? What do you want to say? Well, I mean, I, obviously, that's a, I, want, I want to write the, the perfect Irish crime no, well, like film, or I want to write the perfect, you know, um, and I want, I, I have my message that I want to get across in, in the film. But what's bottled up in you? Yeah. But so what is bottled up in you? <laughs> 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 do you want to have that psychological conversation now, Jim? <laughs> go ahead. Um, you know, go for yeah. it. Well that's, well, that's it. And is it just a matter of going for it and trying to get the essence of the story <coughs> onto the page? I think leave, it's just trying to put your own, I don't know, what do you think, cowardice, fear? Ask me, I don't you know. know. <laughs> yeah. Huh? So you're trying to get the, the emotion onto the page and the... Yeah. I think most importantly, people just want to see something they haven't seen before. Yeah. You know, and uh, sometimes the easiest way to do that is to be to do what's um, perfectly true to yourself. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, not too, not too much description. Not too much description. Yeah. 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 Okay, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the panel here, thank you all very much for coming.